Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning. This week in our, our renovation series, we're really, we're really talking about how the renovation of the heart affects the use of your body. And so one of the best passages about this is Romans 6, where it, it basically is talking about the fact that all of us experience a much deeper degree of brokenness than we realize, but we can all experience an even greater degree of freedom. So I'd like you to read this with me. I like it when you read it out loud. Would you read God's word together with me? Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So now what I'd like you to do is turn to your neighbor. Let's preach a little bit at each other. Point your finger at him because you can't you can't really do this effectively without your finger. All right, so I want you to look at them and say this. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. Say, say with me. Sin shall not be your master, for you are under grace. Now, every now and then, you see, you've, you've got to take Scripture and instead of just interpreting it, apply it. Just take it right to the place of the problem. We are broken people, but we have a remedy. So let's look and think about this a little bit. What we've been talking about over these weeks together is that our spiritual transformation, our heart transformation, is into Christ-likeness. He is more and more forming our inner world in such a way that you are in your inner world taking on the character of Jesus himself. So your outer life begins to express this inner reality of Jesus and his character and his teachings in the way that you live. See, it is not outside in, it's inside out. So that doing what he said and what he did increasingly becomes a part of who you are. He said the things that he did, you will do. And greater things because he goes to the Father. This isn't a pipe dream. This is a possibility for every single believer. For this to happen, though, our, our bodies must increasingly be poised to do what is good and to refrain from what is evil. The inclinations of wrongdoing that have inhabited the parts of our body 
These have to be eliminated. This is what it means when it says, when you presented your body as instruments of unrighteousness, you became slaves to that unrighteousness. And so now as you present the parts of your body to righteousness, you become a free person to be a slave to righteousness. But this is the issue, is the body is meant to serve you, not you serve the body. And so that, therefore, the idea is the body stops being your enemy and it starts being your ally. So for good or evil, the body lies right at the center of this spiritual life. So for some people, that's kind of a strange thing to think that the body is, is, is really where it all is expressed. So you can immediately see around us the human body is often the primary barrier to conformity to Christ. So let's, let's think about this a little bit together. You are a complex being. Would you say that to your neighbor? Okay, you have thoughts, feelings, choices, social interaction, and a body. Now, the two places where your inner life intersects your outer life is your social interaction with others and the way your body performs or behaves. But all five of those are integrated into a control center, which we would either call the heart or the soul. So many people like to say, well, you know, I did this or that, but I have a good heart. Well, whatever you're doing is actually manifesting the true nature of your heart. Things that slip out of your mouth and you say, oh, I didn't really mean that. Then why was it in there? That's that's really trouble when some of us are arguing with our spouses. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to say that. Well, why was it there? And why did it come out when you got angry? So it must have been inside for it to come outside. And so there's a there's a big aspect that we're talking in this fall is the Lord doesn't just want you to refrain. He wants you to be free. He doesn't want you just to suppress. He wants your expression to be a true expression of your new nature in Christ Jesus. But for that to happen, you have to realize that at some point your body has inhibited you instead of been your ally. And so what we begin to understand or need to understand is what was God's intent for the body? And, and, and it was never his intent that it be our enemy. It is not, the, your physical being is not inherently evil, nor is it even, nor is all the evil caused by your body. Your body is an expression of what's inside of you. One, one of the things that many of us struggle with is how deep our sin and brokenness actually is. My, uh, my little daughter, when I was teaching her theology, there's this one section where I was teaching her. It says, it says, why do you need a savior? And the answer was, because I'm a sinner. And my daughter, who was, had a real strong southern accent at that time, said, daddy, I'm just a little sinner. <laughs> and I was like, that's what everybody thinks. We all think we're not Adolf Hitler. You know, we're not the worst we could be. But the scripture says that if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken the law in all places. And that even the reason that we do good 
comes out of motivations that are bad. For example, a person who doesn't lie will not lie because they're afraid of getting caught. Or they'll not lie because of their pride that says, I'm not that kind of person. Well, that's the same motivation of the person who lies. He says, I'm going to lie so that I don't get caught because I'm afraid. Or the person says, I'm going to lie so nobody knows how bad a person I actually am, which is pride. So if the motivation of an action is the same, then what's coming out is sinful either way. You're not called a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. This is why it is so important that anyone understands religion will only decorate your sinfulness. You must be born again. You must have a new nature. You must have death to the old self and a risen, resurrected new self. Otherwise, the issues are too deep for you to rehabilitate. You can't just reform it. You have to crucify it. And so what, what we're talking about and why we're talking about the heart change is because the real issues that are manifesting in your body are spiritual in nature, even though they might behavioral in expression. And so the, the issue that most of us have is our body hinders us in, in even being able to do good and right, because the truth is we all were formed in an evil atmosphere. Even if, even if you grew up in a Christian home or you grew up in a good church or whatever it is, all around you is a fallen world. And this fallen world shapes and fosters evil that constantly runs ahead even of our best intentions. But it's important we understand that the Bible doesn't say the body is a bad thing. So you do not atone for anything by punishing your body. God made your body and called it good. And, and even the Lord Jesus himself did not come in a spiritual body. He came in a physical body. The Son of God was the Son of God incarnate. And so there are ways in which, you know, to take care of your body. Uh, Dallas Willis says your body should be cherished and properly cared for. Not as our master, but as a servant of God. But here's the thing. Most of us, our bodies govern our whole lives. Our, our appetites, our desires, our needs, all of these things. Even professing Christians, by and large, devote to their spiritual growth and their spiritual well-being a tiny fraction of the time we devote to our bodies. And it's even a tinier fraction devoted to our spiritual lives if you include how many things you worry and fret about. Do you understand the growth that you experience spiritually is the amount of time and space that you devote to it spiritually. If you are inconsistent and erratic in your spiritual life, your growth will be inconsistent and erratic. Amen. It is fascinating to me how many Christians encounter situations where they need million-dollar answers but have never prayed but nickel prayers their whole lives. And then wonder, why did you let this happen to me, God? And why don't you get me out of this, God? We don't realize that the spiritual life is like any other muscle. The faith muscle is developed or it's not. It grows or it doesn't. 
You have everything you need for life and godliness. It was given to you the day you were born again. But what you do with it is still a matter of the heart. And the truth is, it's so interesting that one of the complexities of being a human is you always have choices. I'm always fascinated by people who say, I had no other choice. Yes, you did. That's the choice you chose. We would rather make everything else responsible for our choices than ourselves. You see, your choices always reflect your priorities. A disordered, uncultivated heart will always be overwhelmed by sin, by lust, and by other things. And at the same time, you'll think, well, I have no other choice. This is why I started off today by saying this. You have this choice always to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. When you start there, you will see you have many other choices, but it has to be foundational that I am a person that sin no longer is the source of my life. It's not the source of my needs. It's not the source of my wants anymore. I have a completely new source, whether it's for my finances, my relationships, my health, whatever it is. And I have to give that space now so that I have capacity to actually flow in the spirit when I need to flow in the spirit the most. And the truth is, maybe you've seen this too, is that things happen in your life that you're not prepared for. But it's always interesting that if you don't have any experience, you will default to the worst experiences and to the worst habits of your past. But if you at least have some experiences and are keeping yourself consistently around others who do have good experiences of overcoming and conquering and having victory, what will happen is this experience that is new to you will become a part of your portfolio of faith. And you'll be able to say, I saw how faithful God was in this. He will be faithful now in what I'm facing. And what happens is the spirit of God will always take you into situations that will require faith. But if you step into those situations with faith, they will become situations of trust. Oftentimes, the Lord is leading you where you have not been so that when you get there, you can tell others how to get there with you. Are you tracking with me a little bit? Two of you. I guess I'll go on. So one of the biggest issues that any of us face is in the area of our sexual brokenness. Some years ago, I was invited to go lead a, help lead a pastor's prayer summit in Africa. And the, uh, the uh, thing that somebody told me, I don't remember who it was, it says you can't talk about sexual immorality with these pastors because, because they're all practicing it. And I said, well, that's probably the only thing we should talk about then. Because if you have this open door to the enemy, what else is going to help? You know? So I asked the Lord, I said, how do we help them with this? And he showed us this way. And we set up private counseling with as many pastors as wanted to come. And we did deliverance sessions. So I spent uh, quite a few days with hundreds of pastors hearing their stories. And, and, and this, is, this was heartbreaking. 
But one of the most heartbreaking stories was this. There was a, a very well-known pastor from a very well-known family in that tribe. And he came just, just weeping. And he said, you know, I have been unfaithful in my marriage. I have a mistress in the city. And I've been stealing money from the church to support my mistress. So you see, not only was he breaking his own family and destroying himself, but he was also destroying his witness, his church, all of these things. You see, no sin in your life ever stays solo. It always expands out because once the enemy has a place, he wants all the places. So I want you to, I want you to listen to the story that Tony Evans tells in his book, U-Turns. In cultural traditions, it is told that the Eskimos had a very interesting way of killing wolves. One of the ways they would do so was to take a knife and stick it in ice with a blade pointed up. When they would, then they would coat the icy blade with blood, knowing that the scent of the blood would draw in the wolves. The result would be a wolf smelling the scent of blood. Because the blood was frozen on the knife, the wolf would lick the knife. Of course, because the temperature was so cold, the wolf wouldn't necessarily feel its own tongue as it began to be cut by the blade of the knife. All the wolf would focus on was the blood on the knife, even as that blood began to be mixed with its own blood. After a while, the wolf would bleed to death, not even knowing it was the cause of its own demise. Entrapped by the enjoyment of licking the bloody knife, the wolf would be tricked into its own destruction. This is a great metaphor for sexual immorality. Many people have fallen prey to their own pleasures, leading to spiritual death. The Bible is replete with information on the consequences that come through illicit sexual behavior. Lives are shattered, legacies dismantled, and dreams aborted through this one kind of sin more so than any other area of sin in our lives. Most of us have experienced the negative ramifications of immoral sexual relations, thoughts, or behaviors, either through our own choices or through someone we love who has brought those consequences to us. Our culture promotes a lifestyle of sexual immorality like it is the best thing, and sometimes as if it is the only thing that matters. Satan is an expert at taking what has been created by God for good and perverting it into something very bad. See, are you, are you hearing me? Here's the deal. We are, we are living in exactly what Dr. Evans is talking about, a time where the, the blood is on the blade and we don't even know it because the sensation of pleasure is so overwhelming to people without purpose. Now here, here is the studies that I've seen, is that so many people will say to you, well, what I'm doing is not hurting anybody, whether it's an illicit affair or whether it's one night stand or whether it's, it's pornography and all of the other things. But here's what the studies say, is that because we live in a time where pretty much we have food to eat, and because we have clothes to wear and we have homes to live in, and many of us have jobs that we care about, we are often very empty, lonely, depressed, 
often very moody in so many different ways, and we're trying to find things that will make us feel. And so because your body is, is, is so complex, there are certain illicit activities that can trigger high levels of pleasure hormones, that can trigger high levels of adrenaline, that can, can make you feel a certain chemical way about things. And, it, and if you look at some of these things, whether it's a one-night stand or an affair or even the, the, the types of pornography and, and actions that people take when they get trapped in that bondage, is it's not about sex even. It's about the mood. It's about the chemicals. It's about the pleasure Sometimes I've been in counseling situations with husbands and wives, and the one who cheated will say, that person didn't even matter to me. And they're, they're actually right. All that mattered was how I felt. And all that mattered was how much pleasure it gave me, or how much risk I took, or how much of this or that, which is telling you this is an utterly selfish act. It's not about a person. It's not about loving a person. It's not about caring for another person. It's about how do you make me feel? Do you release certain pleasure hormones? Which means in many ways, sex becomes just another drug. It's like a physical cocaine that you're taking. And the body is interesting because the body can be tricked, but not very often. And so when it releases so much pleasure in one act, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to top that action to get that kind of pleasure again. As a matter of fact, and this has been an interesting thing because I do do a lot of stuff on emotional healing and, and, and healing of brokenness. I've had many, many people in ministry who've come to me and said, I love my spouse, but I'm not attracted to my, uh, my spouse anymore. And, and they, they go, what do I do about that? I'm like, I'm not paid that much to, you know. <laughs> That's way... What are you talking about? <laughs> but after a while, I, you know, because it really bugged me. I was like, okay, one, it seems like this is very superficial. That, that somehow sex has been separated from love. And that sex is about something other than love. So I, I began to realize, oh. And I said, well, what was your sexual past? And they said, well, I had lots and lots of women, which I just gave away. It was men telling me that story. <laughs> I was trying not to give that away. I was like, oh, so for you, it's about the chemical release. It's not about the love being expressed. And what I've found is I do more and more study, particularly illicit things, but pornography is, is number one at this. It reorients your brain so that you have to get that chemical high. You have to get that release. And you, say, and, and you see, it's, it's not about a person because you're not attracted to a person you'll ever meet. Or if you do meet, you're crazy. Some of you got that one. So what is it about? Well, it's probably about something so deep. And one writer said it this way. If you have had in your life a lot of pain, 
And he calls it deprivation. If you've lived with some deprivation, and most of us have lived with some degree of deprivation. Some of us have lived with a lot. And for some of us, even the pain and, and, and emotional pain was just so normal, we don't even know what healthy home looks like. But many of us have been bullied. Many of us have been you know, subject of abuse. Many of us have gone through very traumatic circumstances, loss, all kinds of things. And this, this counselor says that if you have gone through deprivation, that one of the ways many of us handle deprivation or emotional pain is that we disconnect from it, that we, in a way, we're present, but we're not present. We're there, but we're not there. And, and it's called dissociating, but the idea is you're really just, you're disconnecting from the pain. And, and, and we're living in a society that's disconnected in a very deep way. I, I'm often amazed at watching a group of people who are all together doing something fun, but they're all on their phones to somebody else. So they're present with this group, but they're really talking to a whole other group. And I always go, that's a, that's a person with deep emotional pain because they can't be present with those who are present. They have to be there and not be there at the same time. Well, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to, he calls it a sense of entitlement. And so what, what does that mean? Well, it means this. You know, I had a really hard day today. Don't anybody get between me and my pain relief. I really, I really, I really sacrificed. I'm really lonely. I'm really, I'm really very alone. Therefore, don't anybody tell me that I can't have what I think is going to make me feel better. So entitlement becomes, I have a right to have my mood regulated. And so what does sex become? Sex becomes mood regulation, not love, and not covenant expression. And so when anybody then gets in the way of your mood regulation, they're the enemy, not an ally. And so God becomes an enemy to your sexuality. God becomes an enemy to what you think is your self-salvation strategy. You see, the issue isn't just that you've got a behavior issue. The issue is that at the root, you have a trust issue. You have a broken heart, and you've tried to mend the broken heart with something that has enslaved you. It's something that has blood on a knife. And while you're licking it, it feels pleasurable until you realize the blood is now your blood. And it's now your life. This is why this is so important. Now, some of you may have no issue with sexual immorality at all. But every one of us is in a sexually immoral, broken culture. And if we aren't able to start talking about this in a way that's not... Not, not about condemnation, because have you ever seen people condemned into new and transformed hearts? No. I'm not. They just hide better. They just make sure they don't show you. So I wrote this more like a manuscript. Are you, you guys with me a little bit? Yes. I wrote this more like a manuscript, so I, I don't want to get off script too much. I usually do, but just not too much this time. 
So the problem with this particular area of sin is that it's actually the most natural focus in our lives. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, if you're having trouble with substances or alcohol, you can just say, I'll never drink again. But if you are married or you're in a relationship or you're thinking about having a relationship, you can't just go, I'll never have sex again. So you've got to have a healthy, you have to have a healthy relationship with sex, which means it has to take care of the brokenness of your past. And it's not a sin that you look outwardly to locate. It's right here inside. It's tied to that which is already legitimately built within us. It's situated even in our human DNA. And Tony Evans says, but like salt water, when you drink it to satisfy your thirst, it can eventually kill you. Our desire for sexual intimacy is actually rooted in our spiritual connection to God's covenant. Initially, sexual relations serve as a way to both inaugurate and set in motion the marriage covenant. The covenant of marriage is both sealed and confirmed by the first marital sexual encounter. Sex was given to us as an enjoyable gift for marriage, but now we've removed the covenant aspect. When you remove the covenant aspect, you remove the purpose of the activity, and then the activity itself becomes meaningless and without boundaries. Tony Evans, again, I like this. He says, in the fireplace, a fire is a beautiful thing. It warms the room. But when the sparks fly and are allowed to go anywhere and everywhere in a home, it will burn down the entire house. God created a fireplace for sex, and he called it marriage. We have allowed the sparks of sex to go outside of the fireplace, and as a result, we are experiencing a destructive burning in our lives, relationships, and world. Now, Paul talks about this in such an interesting way because he's He doesn't just talk about how you use your body in general ways, but he says the test of your sanctification, the test of how you're growing in transformation of the Holy Spirit is actually whether sexual desire is controlling you or you are controlling your sexual desire. Now, the the issue and sometimes in the scriptures is that the word lust doesn't just mean sexual desire. The word lust actually means this. It's anything about which you have an over-desire. You see, when you have an over-desire, it means it's controlling you. You're not controlling it. And so the flesh is ripe. It always gives access to over-desires. The obsessions that we get into or when we start to say, I have to have this or this has to happen. And so what can happen is that the whole area of sexuality can become the most dangerous area because it is a place in which you can have incredible feelings and and incredible manifestations of of life in a way, and and if it's illicit, it can trap you. I mean, I'm 63 years old. God, God forgive you. But I can remember riding my bike as a kid through the woods and seeing my first pornographic magazine. And I can see it, even though it's probably 50 some odd years ago. But I can still see it burned in my mind, even as I tell that story to you. That is how powerful to the mind this 
this whole aspect of sexuality is. So we began to, we began to realize that if that's an area that the enemy can access, he will not be satisfied until he gets you captive. And so we go back to what Jesus said. You cannot serve two masters. Your body is not yours to do whatever you want to. Will you listen to me for context for a second? The body has always been difficult for humans to deal with. So you know what the ancients and, and the traditional cultures did? They said your family owns your body. You belong to your family, and your family belongs to you. So we'll decide who you marry. We'll decide who you, you know, what you do for a living. We'll make sure you're never alone. Never alone. And... Uh, all of that, so you'll have the security of the family. But in order to have that security, you have to give up your freedom. And then Western culture came along and said, hey, that's oppressive. And so what do Western culture say? My body belongs to me. But have you ever noticed how lonely so many of us are? Have you ever noticed how when we most need people to be closest to us, there's no one near us? So what do we do? We need mood regulators. So I'm all alone. So that's when, I'm, when we're all alone is when we're most susceptible to pornography. When we're depressed, when we're stressed out, when we're, when we're, you know, when we're wondering, does anybody love us? Does anybody care? Do I matter? These are all the times, you see, because I no longer belong to my family, but I belong to myself. These are all the times when I'm like, I'm all by myself. It's, if it's to be, it's up to me. I don't know about the rest of you, but as the older I get, the more I love my family, the more I need my family. Kind of wish I'd had two or three more kids. I love my two kids, but I might have liked two more of them just to take care of me. No, I shouldn't have said that. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches neither of those. The Bible says you belong to God. That's why... That's why it says in Romans 12, 1, it says, will you give your body as a living sacrifice? That's you acknowledging my body belongs to you. In other words, think about this. God has not only raised the Lord up, but will raise each of us up if we place our faith in Christ through his power. In other words, Christ lives within us. We are to be one with him in all that we do. Now, I want to do a little theology with you. I don't have a long time, but I want to do a little bit of theology with you. There is biblical theology about sex. And, and, and truthfully, all of biblical theology has a connection to the union that takes place between a man and a woman in marriage. Christ used that analogy to say he is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. But even more than that, he specifically has said that when you come into faith with Jesus, you are now in union with Christ. In other words, your life, who you are, your blessings, your favor, God's riches, all of those things are now yours because you are in Christ, but also all the power of God and the presence of God is in you because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So you see, when you enter into a sexual relationship, you are entering into another union. You are not simply uniting body to body, or even if you 
just unite mind to a, a fantasy or any of those things. You are uniting your soul to that person. Something spiritual happens every time you have sex. You are connected to somebody else in a way that is much more than just a physical connection. But even more than that, because you're a Christian, whoever you're having sex with, union with, you're bringing Christ with you. That's why a lot of people are surprised at how little illicit affairs or illicit sex actually accomplishes. And I think it's this, that before you have Christ in your life, you can have an affair and it's just, you know, you feel this chemical reaction and you can break it off with somebody and all this stuff can go on. And, and you have damaged yourself spiritually and you have damaged yourself emotionally, but it's very different for a Christian because you are united with Christ by his spirit in your life. And so when you're having sex with somebody else, you're bringing the Holy Spirit with you. And guess what? He's crying the whole time. It says you can grieve the spirit. You can quench the spirit. So instead of living in his presence and his power, you're having to say, you go away so I can get my needs met over here. And so we got this, we have a problem as Christians that's very different than the one non-Christians have. This is why Paul says, flee immorality. Because this sin is against you, not just against the person you're having it with. And the destructive forces of this unique sin bring a unique set of circumstances. Number one above, above all those, whether you know it or not, your body is the temple of the living God. That never changes. A temple is a house of worship. Your emotions, your spirit, your body were designed in such a way as to offer the creator of the universe worship. You're to glorify God with your body. Now, there are some people that sometimes say to me, well, what kind of God wants to be worshiped? And I'm like, do you understand your own human nature? Have you ever noticed that something is not complete until you praise it? I mean, how many of you, maybe you're the, I'm the only one, but man, you give me good food, there are going to be sounds coming out of me. And Lisa goes, we're in a public place. Stop that. Sounds like I'm having an affair, you know, so, so embarrassing to her. But the, the fact is something that is meaningful to you is not complete till you praise it. It's not for him that you're praising it him. It's for you because then you're saying, I have experienced him a minute or two ago. Didn't we just sing great is your faithfulness? And immediately my mind went to all the past times when he's rescued me, all the times when he's come through for me. You see, when I say that I get to live it again. And when I live it again, it gives me hope and power for tomorrow. Are you guys, I'm doing all the work and you seem tired. Here's the deal. I've told you how broken we are. But what I also want you to understand is that we can live in complete victory in this area. Not because we suddenly have no more sexual attraction to the wrong things. 
but because we begin to realize that the only thing that can atone for our brokenness is not us doing better, but us receiving Christ. See, the the consequences of your sin and my sin have been reversed in the cross of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, Jesus encountered a woman who was called in adultery. And you remember that story is they're there, they've got, they've got stones, they've got rocks, and they're ready to kill her for her adultery. And what did Jesus say? Let the one who has no sin be the first one to cast a stone. Now, I think at least the way I read the story is they're still holding on to him. And they're, you know, and they're, they're uh, gritting their teeth, you know. And then it says Jesus starts writing in the sand. My own feeling is he started writing their sins in the sand. And as he wrote their sins, the rocks started dropping. Because now they know that the one who stands before them knows their hearts. And so then he looks at her and he says, where are those that condemn you? And they're all gone. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Then notice something. Jesus didn't say, go and sin no more. And then I won't condemn you. He said, neither do I condemn you. See, what you and I often do is we try to stay in a place of regret, in a place of shame, in a place of feeling disqualified. When Jesus says, if I've said to you, there is therefore now no condemnation, then there is therefore now no condemnation. You see, if I have become your sexual immorality, because the scripture says, He who knew no sin became the sin. If he's become that, then there is no more price to pay for that. And so when you receive forgiveness, you're not saying it wasn't a sin. You're just saying the one who took it on himself has taken my guilt and my shame. And when you recognize that and you are able to stand up now to the accusations of the enemy then freedom starts to come in a way like never before. Because this scripture says, if you presented your members of your body to unrighteousness, you became a slave of unrighteousness. Then it says, but now if you present the members of your body as slaves to righteousness, then you become slaves of righteousness. It's a transformation. Here, I have way too many things for today. I like that though. Here's the deal. Every memory you have is not a photograph. Every memory memory you have is an impression. It's an impressionistic painting. And what I find is that the sexual sin of your past, the brokenness of your past, the enemy has provided a lie that now governs the memory. So that when you put your memory, either pull it out or put it back into your memory banks, It either is being held there by a lie that Satan gave you, like you'll never be clean, you'll never be pure, you'll never be righteous, you'll never be good enough. If that kind of lie is governing that memory of the places of sin in your life, then every time something similar happens, that lie will come out to try to govern that that current issue as well. And so many people say, well, you know, I don't have to deal with my past because it's all under the blood. Here's the deal. If you don't bring out your past, it's not under the blood. It's under the rug. And it's not dealt with. And it's coming into your present and it'll keep coming into your future. 
What Jesus wants you to do is he wants you to revisit your past issues. He wants you to expose the lies that are governing those past issues. And he wants the blood of Jesus to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So that not only are you somebody who's just suppressing your lust or trying to refrain from your lust, but you're a person who actually gets free. Because the one that the Son sets free is free indeed. So here's what I'd like. Are you, are you hearing me? Here's what I'd like you to do. Will you stand with me? Will you pick up your communion cup? Okay, I need you, I need you to get in warfare mode for a few minutes, all right? Okay, I'm not sure I want to go to war with you guys then. Come on, come on, shake it off. The enemy has tried to destroy your family through the access of sexual brokenness, your marriage, your own ability to be intimate with one another. He's tried to use that access as long as, as can be. If you've been sexually abused, he was behind it. If you've been sexually molested, he was behind that because he's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus is the one who wants to now hold your memories so that in everything that has ever happened to you and everything that's ever gone on in your life, he wants to say, I'm going to show you how I'm going to transform your deepest pain into your greatest victory. He is called the Redeemer because he takes things that tried to make you into nothing and he makes you into a blessed and favored child of God. But you have to let him. Today, you see, when you're dealing with sexual brokenness, it isn't about willpower. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to try to be less sexually broken. That doesn't work. It's about consent of saying, transform me, heal me, be with me. Show me how to walk this out. And the way that I find is best to, to begin is to start with prayer and, and with announcement to the enemy. So first we're going to pray. But here's the thing is, I think you got to get a little prophetic with me. Get a little, get a little uh, fist up in the air. You can put a finger up in the air. You've, maybe you've never done it before, but get tough right now, okay? Do a little bit of something, all right, that says, this is, this is my body. I'm, this belongs to God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it back to him in every way I can. Okay, the prayer is up on the screen. We're going to read it together. It's just using the scriptures to take back any ground the enemy has gained. So let's do this together. Dear Heavenly Father, you have told me to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and not to think about how to gratify my sinful desires. I confess that I have given in to sinful desires which wage war against my soul. I thank you that in Christ my sins are already forgiven but I have broken your holy law and given the devil a chance to wage war in my body. I come to you now to confess and renounce these sins of the flesh so that I may be cleansed and set free from the bondage of sin. Reveal any ways that I have used my body, including my mind, to commit sexual sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that's the prayer. All right, some of you are still a little weak in your battling. Come on. Come on, get a little tougher for me. Come on. Play like it's vacation Bible school or something, all right? You, 
you've got to be serious with the enemy. You've got to be serious because he knows every generation of sexual immorality that's in your family. He knows every weakness. I've seen him skip generations and come after the new generation. It is time that we take back the ground that the enemy has gained. Okay, so we're speaking to the Lord, but we're also renouncing. All right, ready? Come on, a little tougher this time. Lord Jesus, I renounce all these uses of my body as an instrument of unrighteousness, and I admit to my willful participation. I choose now to present my eyes, mouth, mind, heart, hands, feet, and sexual organs to you as instruments of righteousness. I present my whole body to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, and I choose to reserve the sexual use of my body for marriage only. Now, wait just a minute. Okay, this next part is so important. Okay, the Bible says if you do your part, Jesus cleanses. If you do your part, Jesus cleanses. You're not fighting the devil. You're letting, the, you're letting Jesus fight the devil for you right now. Okay, but I want you to be strong here. This is one of the most important paragraphs I've ever said in my life. Because it's so easy to think I haven't done enough. But Jesus has done enough. And I'm, I am giving consent that what he has done is enough for me. So let's say it together. I reject the devil's lie that my body is not clean or that it is dirty or in any way unacceptable to you as a result of my past sexual experience. Lord, thank you that you have totally cleansed and forgiven me and that you love and accept me just the way I am. Therefore, I choose now to accept myself and my body as clean in your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. God, as another way that we're saying that we are living sacrifice to our God that he has cleansed us, that the curse has been broken, and that there is nothing that separates us from him when we are in Christ. And so we're gonna start by taking the cracker together. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his friends and he had a meal with them and he broke bread. And he said, this bread represents my body, my body broken for you. When you eat this bread, do it and remember me and remember that the curse has been broken. So church, let's eat together. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, blood that is shed for you, blood that means you get to come close to the Father, blood that means you are a living sacrifice, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a dwelling place of the Most High God. So when you drink this, drink and remember me. So church, let's drink together. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice. Thank we thank you for the blood. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what you've done for us so that we can boldly approach your throne. 
And so we come before you this morning and present ourselves as living sacrifices for you. Thank you that you gave us a way to taste, to express, to remember. We give you all the glory and all the honor. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, before you go, um, this is a very important day. Uh, this is a countercultural day. This is, this is a freedom day. What we've just prayed, those words are just true. We don't make them true because we believe them. We believe them because they are true. But there are times like this where, where it's important to seal what God is doing. And sometimes it's really important to say to somebody else, I'm believing that God is breaking this addiction in my life. God's breaking this connection. That God's breaking this, this power source in my life. And so we, we have our elders here. We have our prayer uh, ministers here. I'm going to ask them to come on up now. I think it's important to say this to somebody. I don't want you to leave today and say, you know, I wish I had taken this a step further. We, we see this platform, this area up here as an altar where we are giving ourselves as living sacrifices. So we're going to close. Ashley's going to finish us up here. But please avail yourself. I sense the Lord's spirit. I also sense a fight. I feel like the enemy is trying to beat me up. But I believe that we're here to rescue each other, that Jesus is here to rescue us. So please come and pray. And today, make this, make this real to you, your own soul of saying, I know that I am clean. I know that I've been forgiven. I know that I'm accepted. It will make so much difference to your identity. You won't continually question, am I okay or not? And even if the enemy comes and puts pornographic images in your mind or past images in your mind, whatever it is, you say to him, that's not who I am. And I believe, you, I believe some of you need to come and just pray with some of our ministers here and make this like a stake in the ground today.